on this week's episode of Master of the Craft, another like longtime kind of friend of yours. Uh, Jim is on the show, which is super fun because I think everybody's going to be familiar with some of you know Jim's work. How, how do you know Jim? And also, how would the audience know Jim's work? Uh, Jim, uh, who I've known since 1986. Um, Jim, uh, people know him as... Uh, probably mostly as the guy who wrote the screenplay for fight club. So, but, uh, but I knew him before that. Um, I remember when he sold his first movie, as a matter of fact, it was a big deal. Cause I think he had been, a, he was a bartender if I'm not mistaken at the time. Mm. So it was a big deal that he sold that, but um, he was one of the people I hung out at the, with at the ranch, which I've mentioned before, um, which is, was just a house. Uh, but he was one of the people there. And um, we were the two, I, I would say, two serious screenwriters in that group. Everybody else was more interested in other things, performing and, and uh, those kinds of things. Um, not that they weren't writing, but I think the two screenwriters um, were really me and Jim. Uh, other people have written stuff since then, but um, like Paul Feig and whatever. And maybe Paul was writing stuff and I didn't know it, but... Um, but the people who would be identified as screenwriters, me and Jim. And uh, so we had that, that bond uh, where we would talk story and talk about that stuff. So it was great to get him on the show. Um, I don't get to see him so much anymore. So it was great to sit down and talk to him. And it was great to, uh, it, it felt like old times. It's the way we used to talk uh, back in the eighties. So it was cool. I think people will get something from it. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by screenwriter Jim Ulls, the writer of Fight Club and Jumper. Jim shares why his goal in writing is to demonstrate something with a truism and how he knows he succeeded. So you had been uh, writing for quite some time and you had studied uh, theater and playwriting, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, okay, so you had been you had been writing, and how long you'd been in had you been in L.A. before you sold that first script? Uh, let's see, I um, moved to L.A. after a couple of years. I went to UCLA. Okay, and then after UCLA, uh, probably a couple of years that I sold the script. And you were writing specs and uh, bartending and all of that, and. What was your ultimate goal? What were you trying to do? What was the big goal? What was the big thing that Jim Wools was trying to make happen? Well, the first thing was selling a spec. And specs became big at that moment because of Shane. It yeah. seems. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like Shane sold Lethal Weapon, for, you know, with some astronomical amount of money at the time. And so everybody was like, that's what you got to do. Now, that's when I first got to L.A. So I was like, I guess that's what you do. I do remember um, that Feig was uh, in the sort of minor leagues breaking through, right? He, because he was on the Dirty Dancing TV show, if you recall. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? But he's like one of a million people who were on the show. You know, he, he, he would work, but it wasn't like anybody knew his name, you know? <laughs> right. would show up on the Facts of Life or something. You know, <laughs> he would do a TV show here or there, that kind of thing. Um, but I think the first big breakthrough was you, um, with that script that never got made, right? No. And, and, uh, where does that sit? Do you know, is it just gone forever? 
it was lined up to be a pretty big movie. Like, it was crazy what happened. Well, yeah, because Joel Silver was the producer, and uh, he got Ridley Scott interested in directing, and they'd never worked before together. Yeah, yeah. And I think it might have turned out to be um, who's in control. Mm -hmm. you know? Okay. An issue of who's in control of the movie. Yeah. And so that Ridley left, but Joel stayed on it, and he kept me on it. Oh, cool. Um, we got all the way up to Roland Emmerich, and Roland had some kind of funny ideas, like, why don't we all write it? You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> sure. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, I... <laughs> it, was a, it was a cool script, and I think it, it's, uh, it would still work. Yeah. Well, I think it might work better now, actually. Yeah. You know? Why not? Why yeah. Not? Because can I, can I talk a little bit about the premise of that oh, yeah, script? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was originally called Dead Reckoning, if I recall. Yes. And then it was called Isobar, mm -hmm. right? And uh, it, was, uh, it all took place underground. We had destroyed the surface of the, plan of the planet, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything had moved underground. Uh, and we had these sort of, um, uh, instead of airplanes, it was trains that went everywhere. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. And then there's a there's a basically a, a, a monster, an experiment, a monster, if I recall, that gets loose on these trains. And um, anyway, it was a cool thing. I'm surprised uh, uh, that it that nobody's done anything with it. It would be a yeah, graphic, even, graphic uh, novel or a cool. There's a lot of things you can do. with it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I upgraded the train in my rewrite to being a magnetic levitation train before they actually. That's right. I remember that. Before they were actually out. You know? Yeah. You were very nice to me at that time because um, I read your spec before it sold. And then when, um, when it sold, you let me read every draft. Oh, really? Yeah. You were like, oh, you want to read? And I read every draft. Yeah. Yeah. I still have one of them. I still have one of them. Mm. Um, but yeah, you were very, that was very, I, I wanted to see, because I asked you, I wanted to see what happened from, you know, your spec to, you know, what eventually I thought would get produced. And so I just wanted to see what kinds of changes happened along the way. It was really educational. So when you sat down, for instance, for instance, to write Dead Reckoning, what was that process? I don't remember an outline. Was there an outline? I would do a quasi outline. Okay. I would do something where I had a lot of stuff in my mind, but I would just make notes to remind myself of things I thought I should put down a paper, but it was a, it was a little bit of a mix of both, mm -hmm. you know, already having in mind and having some things on paper. And when you have an idea for a story, what does that look like? What, like, what does an idea look like? Like sometimes I'll have a premise and I know it's not a story yet and I'll have to wait um, and let it cook for a little while. Yeah, that's what I call it, too, a premise without a story. Yeah, and then it has to cook. It has to gestate. It has to grow. And it, there, there, it, sometimes that takes years. Sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes weeks. Sometimes it's taken me decades sometimes. Like, oh, I had this idea 20 years ago. Now I can write that. There are also times when I've sat down, I go, I like this premise. I'm going to come up with a story for it. And I can do that. But, um, but sometimes I just let it cook. 
Is that the way you work? You let it, you understand that, like I understand that as part of the process, so I just let it happen. If I get ideas, uh, premises that don't keep moving into story, I put them on the shelf and I have them around mm -hmm. to look at again. Mm -hmm. And how often do you go back to those? Oh, quite a bit, actually. Um, I'm always trying to see if something sparks. Mm -hmm. I, I like it more when I forgot about them. Because right. <laughs> they seem to come alive more. Mm -hmm. but, but I'm always scouring through all my different files on my computer to see what I've got in there, you know. Mm. I used to write a bunch of stuff down. And then I, I, I figured out that the good stuff, at least for me, would stick around in my head. And the stuff that wasn't so good, I'd forget about. Right. So, but the good stuff would nag me almost. Uh, yeah. Like, well, hey. That's a combination because I do have good things that nag me. And then when I go back and read the notes on them, there were things that I didn't remember while it was nagging me. Okay. Some extra okay. details and stuff like that. Okay, sure. Okay. And what, and for you, I have a very specific thing that makes something a story to me. What is that thing that makes you go, this is no longer a premise or a, a notion or whatever. This is actually a story that I can tell. Well, I think it's a, a story is not something that happens to someone. A story is, is someone happens to something. <laughs> uh, uh, right. Okay. Sure. I might have even heard that from you. I'm not even sure. No, I didn't say that, but I, I should have. <laughs> but I, I did not. When I get it to the point where I feel like I have a strong sense of the character and there's something I want to explore in terms of um, having a story that demonstrates something important about life and humanity or whatever actually demonstrates it you know mm -hmm. that that's the skeleton to start start putting meat on you right know? and where did you learn that i guess always just wanting to having something to prove i want to prove something <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh -huh. i find um Often, the, for filmmakers and screenwriters, there's something that hit them early in their lives, I, up and through their teens sometimes, but it can be really early, or really young, or it can be somewhere in their teens, but there's something that happens where they latch onto something, and they're like, that's it, I've got to do that, I've got to do it that way. You know, uh, the first movie Steven Spielberg remembers seeing in the theater is The Greatest Show on Earth big circus movie that's kind of what he did you know what i mean like that to him was the magic that grabbed him so um uh for me it was probably planet of the apes it was probably you know the first uh, oh, oh what a good one yeah that, yeah <laughs> um yeah so um so that was probably it's like oh that i gotta do that that's the thing so was there a thing like that for you because I find that that ends up being kind of a through line for people often. There were a couple things. Interestingly enough, speaking of Pierre Boulet, I, uh, 
was affected by Bridge Over River Kwai because sure. the obsession with proving we'll show them we can build a bridge. Right. We are not supposed to be building a bridge. <laughs> right, right. And of mice and men, you know, um, yeah. that just, I cried when he killed his brother. Yeah. And yet he had to kill his brother. Right. They're not actually brothers, but they're almost brothers. They're essentially oh. brothers. Oh, yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, but yeah, that's just, you know, because somebody, somebody's going to write that in the comments. So let's just, so, <laughs> let's just dip that in the bud. So, so. like brothers, and um, it was the only way out. Right. Yeah. Was, when I saw that, I thought, God, the potency of having no way out is yeah. a strong. Was that the uh, Burgess Meredith? Yes. Yeah. Lawrence mm -hmm. of Arabia. Why? I, I don't know that I know entirely why. Some people say it's a bunch of sand, but uh, <laughs> I thought it was both majestic, but it had small scale scenes in it that were, were meaningful scenes, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's what, what David Lean did. You know what I mean? He, he, he told small stories on a big canvas. For me, David Lean is um, the Einstein of movies, right? That because, yeah. he, because he understands time and space so well, right? So, so if you see a shot of the desert, um, there's no scale. So you might go, wow, it might be a wide shot of the desert. You go, that's amazing. Look out, that's a big desert. But then he'll put in a small figure of like a camel and then take the time to let that camel move some distance. And it takes a long time. Yes. Right. Yeah. And that time, the size of the camel and the time it takes to move gives you a sense of scale. Yeah, absolutely. It's time and space. And that's why it was like, Oh, he's the Einstein of movies. He understands <laughs> time and space better than every, anybody else. Yeah. But, um, but so he used a big canvas but he told little stories. Right, right. You know, there's a way that he used time that I don't know if anybody does much anymore. Um, and maybe not even then. So when, when and there's a point in the, in the movie where uh, they have to cross this part of the desert that is the devil's anvil, Bill, and it's so hot that they can't do it in the daytime, right? These people who live in the desert are like, you can't go there, you're out of your mind. So they have to cross at night when it's gonna be cool enough. And it takes forever, forever. And I remember I saw it in the theater. The first time I saw it in the theater, I had seen it on TV, but I, when they showed it in the theater, I'm like, I got to see the theater. And I went, and I just remember thinking, this is a really long time. And almost getting to the point where I'm like, I, okay, you know what? I've seen this. I'm done with this. Move on. <laughs> but here's what happened. At the end of that, they realized that a person is missing. And so Lawrence goes, well, I'll go get him. And you go, oh, my God. <laughs> He's got to go back. And you feel it. If it had been a quick montage of crossing the desert, you wouldn't have felt that. Right. Anxiety. Right? It was the time that gave you that anxiety. So he had a really good way. I, I can see totally how, you know, I mean, everybody was influenced by him. So I could see how that would be an early. Was it, did Robert Bolt write, Beckett, the play Beckett? I, I, yeah, I think so. He wrote the screenplay for Launch of Arabia. Yeah. 
Yeah. He had those scenes, those great scenes, you know. Well, I'm just wondering because when somebody says they have an idea for a story, um, I, I once had someone pitch me an idea for a story, and it was not a story. It was a setting, not a story. <laughs> a setting. Well, I've got notes on settings, but I know they're not stories. Yeah, but I actually think that's a point of confusion right now. Like, I think people think that world building is the same thing as storytelling. Like, they're two separate skills, right? And they may go together and very often don't go together, right? Um, right? But they can, but uh, they're not the same skill. Right. And so I think people confuse. So, like, I mean, this person pitched this story to me, and she was like, here's my story. And it was literally as if she said, um, it's a city, and uh, they use uh, Tesla's form of uh, electricity. So they beam you know, electricity through the air, and that's how they powered their city. Uh-huh, uh-huh. She goes, that's it. Like, that wasn't her thing, but that's what it was, you know. And I was like, that? And, she's, and, the, and she prefaced it by saying, I'm going to tell you my story. Now, I don't want you to steal my story, right? <laughs> no story there. Um, so uh, often people have no idea what a story is. Um, and often people who want to be writers have no idea what a story is. Um, which I find fascinating, but it's true. So when we're talking about coming up with an idea and knowing when it's a story, uh, I think you're saying um, you have something to prove dramatically, right? Something you can demonstrate. That, that sounds rather uh, dramatic in itself, prove. I, I, I want to demonstrate that something is a truism. I was, okay. Prove sounds like I gotta hit you to prove. <laughs> oh, does that sound like that to you? Does that the way? Is that the way they hit you? Well, I don't know. I gotta prove something. I guess it can have that connotation. Sure. I thought of it more like uh, uh, a mathematical proof. I know that's very left brain of me. That kind I, of proof. I that often kind of often proof. call it story math. Actually, story what? Story math. Oh, yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, right? I, because, because if somebody has an ending that doesn't work, for instance, what it means is this plus this does not equal your ending. That's what happened. Your math is off, right? So right. you either need to follow that logic from the beginning all the way through to the end, or you need to, if this is where you want to end up, you've got to change something up here so this equals this. Um, and a lot of times people, they don't, they don't do that. They just go, but I like this. It's like, yeah, you might like it, but you, you didn't start off saying that's what you were going to talk about right. um, or that's what was going to end up. Um, a lot of times people will talk to me about um, ambiguity and uh, well, because I always want to come to a conclusion and they're like, yeah, but what if I like it if it's ambiguous? I'm like, you can be ambiguous, but that has to be the point, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it can look like you just stopped writing, right? You know, right? you know, like, you know, very real danger. Yeah. yeah you know, um, but it has to be ambiguous in a way that everybody goes, Oh, they're being ambiguous, right? They're, they're saying there's no easy answer or whatever. And if that's what you're saying, you got to start off saying that's what you're going to say. Right. Right. Then you can do whatever, but uh, you can't just decide at the end, I just want it to be ambiguous. Well, it may not add up to that. Adding up is important. 
Yeah. yeah, it is. This plus this equals this. Otherwise, you don't have anything. Right. Yeah. So from that initial like, okay, this is a story, then what happens? What's your next, what are your next steps? It depends on how I came about the story because I do tend to work from character a lot. Mm-hmm. And I can start with a character like, uh, I really think this is a fascinating character. It might be an amalgam of people I know. It might be whatever. And I want to find well, what would be their, what is their story? Yeah. You know? Um, so I started thinking about what, what, would, what, what is it they want the most? What are they the most afraid of? And start playing around with things that could become uh, the shape of the story for that character, if I'm starting with character. When Neil Simon came up with The Odd Couple, do you know that story about how he came up with that? that? No. So his, his brother, Danny Simon, who was a, a comedy writer, um, uh, had be- recently been divorced. And so Neil Simon was over at his place, and um, uh, Danny Simon had a roommate, and they weren't getting along, this guy. And, and Neil Simon said, this is a play. You should write this. There was something about the interaction that made him say, this is a play. But Danny tried to write it, and he couldn't write it. He kept trying, and he couldn't write it. And he said, Neil, if you want it, you can, you can write it. And so Neil Simon writes The Odd Couple. And what's interesting is that that's a situation where he did start with character. But in the end, he knew that wasn't enough, right? He knew but- that he had to have some reason for telling that story. And what's great about that story, he decided... Um, uh, that these two guys were basically basically going to replay their failed marriage, their failed marriages, mm-hmm. and which is really fascinating to me. So, so he he said he starts off in Act One, and you find out all the things they did that screwed up their marriage. Well, I'm this way, and I do this, and I do that, and I'm oh, I'm a terrible person. And uh, and Felix, you know, has just been kicked out of his house, and uh, Oscar, uh, who ends up being his roommate says because uh, felix is like i don't know where i'm gonna live and oscar's like well you'll live with me and he's like oh i couldn't do that to you you know and he's like no no you live with me it'll be fine and uh and felix keeps uh, saying no no and then oscar says i'm proposing what do you want a ring <laughs> it's amazing because when you watch the interactions from then on out felix takes on the traditional maybe stereotypical role of a woman and is always like, you said you were going to be home. I had dinner on the table, blah, 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 this and that. Their arguments are very much their marriages. In the end, they come out better for having gone through it that way with each other. They take a little bit of each other. I call them flip-flop characters. Felix becomes a little bit more like Oscar. Oscar, Oscar becomes a little bit more like Felix. And, but that starts with character. That started with character, but became, but he made it into a story. He didn't just go, this guy's messy and this guy's clean you know that that won't hold water that won't last very right right they had to work out their marriages with each other which is interesting isn't it yeah yeah when you watch the scenes with that in mind it's amazing to see (laughs) it's amazing to watch because you're like oh that's exactly what they're doing that's exactly it's kind of amazing to watch um but anyway so uh so you sometimes start with character uh, what's the other way that you start? Well, with premise. Like, it's like I have, oh, 
what if this happened during this or in the middle of this or at this location? And I try to push it towards story. And if it doesn't, I leave it in the premise file. Right, sure. Um, of course, as I push it towards story, I'll need to pull a character in. Who's the character that represents where this premise could go? Um, and why? And then I kind of work on the character from the premise perspective. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes that same thing of what does this character do to something rather than something that happens to the character? In that, it's almost like a, a stew. It's all these elements together, and I'm trying to stir it around and get it to co coagulate into a story. And so, okay, so then that happens. And so you do, like you said, a rough outline. You don't really, I tend to do rough outlines too. They're very, very, very rough. Um, almost bullet points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I know it's, what's, what's interesting is I think a lot of people really enjoy that sense of discovery when they're writing. Yes. Right? Yes. But I also think that the, it, it's, um, it's an addictive feeling. I'm sure it's releasing dopamine, right? And so sometimes I think people think that that fun they're having during the discovery translates to the audience as fun for them. And it doesn't always. Well, that's a good point. You have to have enough of an outline that you know where you're going and enough free space so you can discover within that, right? But it's a balance. You I don't just think name the perfect, that's the perfect outline. That's <laughs> yeah. Right, you need, leave enough space so that you can make discoveries, and then, so you can be surprised. But um, I think if you're too surprised in the process, um, and you leave too much to the the fates, that you end up with kind of an unmanageable mess. Yeah, you had, you had a lot of fun writing and have no idea why nobody else is getting it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did that when I was a lot younger, I would write that way. Um, trying to, you know, like, oh, this is just a fun scene between two people. And don't you think this is fun? And people are like, no, I, I don't know. You. It's like, you know, um, but that was also me working out how to write believable dialogue between characters. It was just the work. It, you know, it's like when you're younger and you're learning how to do it. Um, I think that you often fixate on one aspect or another yes. for a while yes so that you get that down and then you can move on to another aspect and then you get that down right. the problem is often people don't move right <laughs> so, well, well if, especially if they get suddenly they just come alive with sparkling dialogue whether that they think it is only or other people agree and say yes it is mm -hmm. and they just run with that and that's the only thing they do and it's like right. <laughs> Yeah. There's got to be, you got to get a story here. Somewhere. Yeah. I, uh, once my, uh, my barber, um, said to me, uh, he's like, Oh, you, you write movies and screenplays. I'm like, Oh yeah. He goes, he said, uh, I want to write a movie. I'm like, Oh really? And he goes, yeah. He goes basically, and this is what you get a lot too. People just want to know the format because they think that's what you have to know. And so he says, well, I just want to know what a script looks like. I already know what I want people to say. 
<laughs> it's like, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're an expert then. I don't need my help. Um, uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 what he didn't know about screenwriting was, you know, um, I mean, it's not, it's, he's a barber. Why would he know? But, yeah. but a lot of people who aren't barbers come at it that way. I know what I want people to say. <laughs> um, and just tell me the format and I'm good. I can't tell you how many people come to me with format questions, which you don't even need to answer anymore. Like when we started, there was no such thing as a screenwriting program, right? So, so you don't even need to answer that question. Get this program and your thing will look like a screenplay. Right. Don't, you know, it's a way of not learning. You know, when people learn, what are the tools? Oh, and this is how I make the dialogue. And it's like, yeah, you're not doing the hard work of actually learning how to make this work. You're not learning... You're not doing the hard work of learning how people interact with one another. You're not doing the hard work of observing life. You're not making doing the hard work of learning how to get exposition out, but make it sound like natural dialogue. You're not, you know, there are all these things they aren't learning. Um, also not learning how to tell stories with pictures, right? So right. it's like, how do you tell, how do you do that without dialogue? Oh, I don't even think about that. Well, it's moving pictures. That's what it is. That's what they call movies. Right. So maybe you should think about that too. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things. It's like, um, you know, the stages of learning. So you have unconscious incompetence, then you have conscious incompetence. Then you have conscious competence, then you have unconscious competence, right? So my barber was in the uh, unconscious incompetence stage, right? <laughs> well, I could write a movie. How hard can it be, right? But if you sat him down for half an hour and told him all the things he didn't know, all of a sudden he would have this conscious incompetence, <laughs> right? Oh, I didn't know you had to do all that. I didn't know you had to do all of that. Um, now, I remember with the, the script that I was talking about when we started with the Isobar or Dead Reckoning, I don't remember any drafts. When you pull it out of the typewriter or print it out that first time, is there another pro part of the process? I tend to only, uh, I'll just write one draft. Um, I think that was one draft. Because yeah. I've done all the stuff we're talking about. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the phrase writing is rewriting. And I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying what it says to people um, is that that is a necessary part of the process. And I would say it's often part of the process, but it isn't necessarily <laughs> part of the process. Right. That, that no, like anything. Right. Yeah. And so um, what, what that often means for people is that they don't know, have to have to know what they're writing about. They just type and type and type and think that magically a story emerges from their typing and that in the rewrite process, they'll find it out. Um, yeah, and that's a terrible way to approach a first draft. It is. <laughs> it is. But that's what people do. Someone said that uh, the second draft is to make it look like you knew where you were going to begin with with the first draft. And I'm like, well, you could just know where you're going. I don't understand... <laughs> You know what I mean? You could know. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? It, it wouldn't hurt to know in the first place. Yeah. 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 So, you know, uh, now sometimes it changes as you work. So that's, that's another aspect of it, right? Sometimes you're working and you're like, oh, I thought I was writing about this, but I'm really, it shifts a little bit. Right. Now, sometimes it shifts because that's just the natural, as you go through and try to demonstrate this thing, different things come up in that discovery process and you're like, Oh, that's interesting. I seem to be veering this way or that way because the characters are taking me there or whatever it is. 
Sometimes, though, I've noticed people will abandon their original idea because it's hard. And then so they pivot so they don't have to do the hard work. And that's really interesting. And if I find myself at a place where I want to pivot, I will make sure that is it because this is hard or is it because this is true that it goes this way instead of that way? And I don't know if people ask themselves that question enough. Um, they, they often take the, the easy route um, because our, we're lazy. I mean, our brains are lazy and they don't want to do more work than they have to. Right. So, right. So if it's like, well, that's, you know, there's an animator, um, uh, Milk Call, who was a Disney animator uh, for a lot of years. And Milk Call um, did a couple of, first of all, he said something, he said, think more than you draw. So he would really think about what he was going to animate and how it was going to work. And he would also say, don't, don't come up with the easy way to do it. Right. <laughs> don't come up with a way. So don't abandon something because it's hard. Find the best way to do it. And once that, then just do that. Right. <laughs> Even if it's hard, that can't be, that can't enter into your decision-making process. Right. And I find that with writing, often writers will take the easy way. And sometimes the easy way out is not to deal with a particular emotion. Right? Not to write that scene that's going to be hard to write or whatever. Uh, they'll take the easy way out and their pieces suffer for it. Yeah. 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 I don't know if that's what you've seen. Um, well, I've certainly yeah. seen that. I've yeah. also seen uh, where... Um, they complicated their act one too much. And um, they think, well, they come to the same conclusion. It's too, it's too much, it's too hard, hard. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna switch directions. When in fact, there were ways to uncomplicate act one. And as you and I know, clarity, if you don't have clarity, you don't have anybody reading or watching right your material anyway <laughs> right <You know? laughs> no it's true they're not yeah it's like well if they just work through this if they just slog through this no they're not gonna they're not gonna, <laughs> not gonna slog through it um it, it reminds me you know be, because i'm dyslexic it's like if i if i'm gonna read a book it's like a thing like okay i'm gonna read this book and i like to read books but it's just like it's a thing it's a chore so um if somebody says to me they used to say this to me. They don't do it anymore. Everybody knows. But they'll say, um, you know, this book is really good. It, it takes about 100 pages to get going, and then it really kicks in. I'm like, you know what you just said to me? This book is 100 pages too long. That's what you just said to me. Right. I, you know what I mean? Like, it, that shouldn't be. That, that should, like, that's a lot of commitment, right? <laughs> Especially for a guy like me, right, who's like, if you ask me to read, it's just essentially twice as much work. So if you say read 100 pages, you're saying read 200 pages, and then it really kicks in. Like, no, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. Life's right. too short, right? I'm not doing that. Um, but um, because we're dyslexic, that, that, uh, that reading process doesn't become an automatic thing. You actually have to use more of your brain to do it. Uh, it makes you tired, and you're actually – physiologically using more of your brain to do the process. So uh, for somebody who it's just easy, they can breeze through those hundred pages. It's no big deal. But I also think that then that fools them into thinking that something is working when it's not because it's easy for them. 
And it's like, yeah, but you didn't need those first 100 pages. Well, it was okay. I just breezed through. It took me, you know, well, whatever it takes you, it takes me three times as long. So just add three times, you know. So it's just interesting to me because I actually think that um, it's been a strength for me in my own work because um, I'm like, I don't need this. I, I basically, I tell people all the time, don't write stuff for people to skip. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't need this. I don't need that. Ah, yeah, yeah. Don't write that. <laughs> you know, they're going to skip it. Why is it even there? When you're talking to younger people or people who are just starting, what are the patterns that you see? What are the mistakes that you notice? And maybe what were some of the things that you had early on? Um, well, for one thing, whenever I notice the mistakes, I had those mistakes. Early. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, what did you struggle with? Exposition is something that people struggle a lot with, and they can do it in big or little ways. Last week, I found out that somebody in real life, a brother said sis to his sister. Really? Yeah. For real. <laughs> We're in a phone call, and he says, you know, sis, I, because I don't believe it. Yeah. I, I see it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. Yeah. So, and regardless of the fact that it might, might have happened with this person or, and it might have happened throughout time with various people, it reads as exposition. It does. It reads as bad. Yeah. And so I always try to get a comment back and forth about a parent. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, you know, to do so to oh, oh that's what they are. Yeah, talk or, to mom today. You know, I talked to mom. Oh, I try to call her. You know, yeah, whatever. I know exactly you what you're never, talking about. You never call mom. You know, it's right. always that kind of thing. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yeah, exposition can be really hard for people. Yeah, um, they often avoid it altogether. I've noticed. So I'll I'll watch a scene or read a scene where I go, I have no idea what this relationship is. I don't know who these people are. And it's amazing how that can be unsettling because you can't fully engage in the scene when you're trying to figure out who these people are to each other. Right. You, you know, I think there's, there's like a fine tuning dial between the audience knowing nothing, right. the audience knowing everything. Sure. And you want to keep things kind of like, going in between that middle right place between them. You know what I mean? You yeah. A little mystery, but then show us some things, then mystery, <laughs> show us some things, but to have nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're talking about. Right. Yeah. It's too much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big one. And you, you had that issue was, as well. I was going to say it's as bad as knowing everything. Yeah. No, um, sorry. What'd you say? I was just wondering, is this an issue you had early on um, in your own work? Oh, yeah. I think I probably um, uh, tried to make things too mysterious. Probably tried okay. to make things too unknown. And why do you think you had that impulse? Well, the fear of, oh, I already know all this. I'm, now I can predict it. Those kind of reactions in the audience or the reader. Mm -hmm. I'm so afraid of that. Yeah that I had to try to be as mysterious as I could, but it was causing the same problem. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, 
Right. You're, you're either connected or you're disconnected. If you're disconnected, <laughs> you, you did something wrong. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. I run into students like that a lot who um, ultimately it comes down to what you said. It usually comes down to the fear, your fear of the audience. The judgment that the audience is going to, you know, keep upon you is what's scaring you. But the problem is, if you are an artist of any kind who presents their work to any kind of public, the thing that makes it great is that you took a risk. The thing that makes it great is that you risk. Create, creating art and putting it in the world is a brave thing to do. And I didn't understand how brave it was. It took me a long time to understand how brave it was. Everybody's nervous, um, no matter how, who they are, no matter how big they are, the day their movie gets released. Are people going to like it? Are people going to love it? Right? You know, are people going to hate it? And it doesn't matter. In fact, I think the bigger people get, the more pressure there is on them. You know, um, you know, I remember when Spielberg had nothing but a big string of hits, you know, nothing but hits um, big. That couldn't have been an easy thing, right? <laughs> the, oh, the, my next one has to do that too. My next one has to be the highest grossing movie of all time too, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Like it, it, it had to, there's a pressure. People think you don't have that pressure when, when you succeed, but I think that actually it, it, the pressure increases often um, right. because then you have a place to fall from. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that you know, audience. In addition to that, Brian, um, we all learn as we go and get better, but we have peaks and valleys. We, 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 we make some of the most obvious mistakes after we shouldn't have. And when you're on a run of success, and that happens, something's like not quite as smart. It sounds a little expositional. It's like you with all these hit movies. <laughs> right. right. So yeah. Then you're just lambasted. For yeah. It. But that's the gig. It's a risky gig. Yeah. Um, you know, that's just it. Um, you know, every actor knows it that goes out and on a stage or in front of a camera. It's risky. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so that makes people sometimes write unclearly because they know that's safe. Yes. That's, yeah. That's what I was doing, and it was a mistake. Yeah. So are there other mistakes, other things that you see? A lot of times I'll see a lapse in what I would call scene-to-scene -scene emotional logic because mm -hmm. somebody this this – dramatic thing happened between these two people in this scene and they go into the next scene which is admittedly either that night or even the next day but their slate is clean of anything that happened emotionally <laughs> right right yeah <laughs> that, uh, i know what you're talking yeah i know yeah. what you're talking about yeah and it's like you know there'd be still some residue from that right yeah yeah I, I've seen that a lot too. I know what you're talking about because each scene for them becomes a unit. This is the scene where this happens. It's like, yeah, but all these other things happen too. Right. right. So they're going to inform this scene. Oh, I was just going to say uh, what I call shoe leather, which is writing a bunch of stuff down in dialogue that you don't need. Like, uh, do you have a pen anywhere? Yeah, it's at the top drawer in the second. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. Well, how long do you think it'll take to walk to the theater from here? Should I, what time should I leave? It's like, 
this doesn't have anything. Just cut to that person being at the theater. <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's a scene in Norma Ray, which I, I, I go on and on about because I always do, but there's a scene in Norma Ray where there's going to be a meeting at this church, a union meeting. And Ruben, who sort of called the meeting, the character Ruben who called the meeting, uh, it's set up, the church, it's set up um, uh, for the meeting and he's whatever. And he, he comes into the church and he sits in a pew. He's all by himself. The meeting hasn't started yet. And he sits and, you know, he's wondering, you know, because of everything that's happened before, are people going to show up? Are people going to be here? Whatever. But it just is, it's just him sitting and then they cut away. And I'm like, no one writes that scene because they think they have to make something happen in that scene, right? But something did happen. The, yeah. some, the, something that happened was nothing, right? <laughs> it was yeah. a guy thinking and wondering, is this working? Is this happening? Are people going to be here? And it's okay to write a scene that didn't have any dialogue in it or to have somebody, you know, think about it. A whole crew had to get there and set up, put up lights, and all that stuff had to happen for that guy to walk in and sit there. And most people want to make something happen. And so because they want to make something happen, they write a bunch of stuff you don't need. Right. Right. And his, uh, the whole point of the scene was he waited and nothing happened. Right. <laughs> right. Um, there's also a scene in that movie that's a, it's a really a great, it's a cut. Uh, Sally Field's uh, father in the movie um, uh, has a heart attack and dies at this mm-hmm. factory. Um, uh, you know, and this factory is a very uh, hard place to work and very brutal. And actually, before he has this heart attack, he he asks his supervisor, he's like, I'm not I'm not feeling too well. I, I think I need to take a break. And they're like, your, your break's coming up in 20 minutes or whatever. You can you can. And then he goes back to work and he has a heart attack. Right. And so this is all part of the fuel that gets Norma Ray very excited about having his union. It decided to maybe not the right word, but it's a very charged about having this union so anyway he has a heart attack and then the next thing we see is the funeral and the casket being lowered into the grave and the you know i think as it lowers we reveal the family sitting there and crying and that's it that's the scene heart attack funeral no dad died what no heart attack funeral that's what you need the funeral doesn't go on forever it doesn't a long elegy nothing there's nothing and it's so economical and it's so perfect um you know it's really smart and it's it's like oh these are people working at the top of the craft who know that that's enough um anything else is too much anything else drags anything else you know it's just so economical that also had the great thing of they try to the management tries to buy norma ray out of activism by making her a manager right it's one of those great impossible situations, you know. It is, yeah. Um, but she re- she turns down the job because she's really not management. She's like, no, I'm a worker. I'm just like everybody else. But that is how they try to buy her off. Martin Red, I love him. Do you have um, a philosophical sort of compass? Do you have a thing like that? Do you do it because you like it, or do you do it for some other thing? Why do you do this? Well. Um, Liking it is one reason. Okay. Um, I've always written uh, characters behaving and speaking. I don't write prose. So I just developed that part of my writing ability. 
and uh, which fits both into screenplays and plays, although they are different. But um, I also want to say something. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I want to uh, put people into difficult situations and see how they come out of it. I want to see, I would like to, to write something that pulls in um, social justice as well as, you know, economic justice as well as the justice of what's important in relationships between human beings and, and get all that into one thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all, nothing ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> and you want the audience to get what? I want them to get that I have demonstrated what I set out to demonstrate mm-hmm. as fully as possible. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you're like, oh, that's the perfect way to think about that. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Or uh, even maybe even within a scene or something you're working on where somebody gives you the key to that thing. I'm just wondering what that, if there is a thing like that. Um, and it may not be something that registered, like you don't remember it because it was made so much sense and you made the adjustment and that was that. But if there is something like that. A key, a key to a scene? Well, I just wonder if there's something like I once um, was reading about uh, the construction of a joke and how the you you want the punchline, whatever the big sort of reveal was that made the punchline work at the end of your sentence. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So so. Um, um, and apparently I can't remember there was I think it was David Lloyd, the comedy writer. I, I read a thing where he told that to one of the younger writers. They were in the writer's room and they told the joke and they were like, he was like, put the punchline at the end. That's and exactly I, right. It works yeah. dramatic things exactly the same way. Yeah. Like, oh, this needs to be at the end. I remember I was, I was uh, uh, working with Steve Harvey and he told a joke. And he used to tell this joke. So I rewrote his joke um, because I'm like, you're telling the joke wrong. And it was... Um, it was about sailing and he was telling a joke about sailing and he had a thing about sailing. And then he said, uh, black people don't sail. He said, after that first big boat ride, we kind of lost our taste for sailing. And I would watch him do the joke. And when he said, after that first big boat ride, people would laugh and they wouldn't hear the rest of the sentence. I'm like, switch it around. We sort of lost our taste for sailing after that first big boat ride. Oh, right. Right. That's, that's the joke. That's the punchline. So sometimes somebody will say something like that. And then that informs when I'm writing something, I'm like, wait a minute, I've got this sentence wrong. I need to move this. And it can make all the difference in the world. Um, And so I'm just wondering, are there tips? Are there things that you've picked up? Well, that's a good one. I I go by that one. Um, I think sometimes this comes from playwriting. Sometimes I want the violence that is visited by one character upon the other to be in words when it could have been a a hit, you know. And that comes from theater where words are the, the medium of action. Right. And I find that, you know, 
if somebody says just the thing that really gets the other person and you might cut out of the scene then. Right. As long as you come back with emotional logic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that, that really sometimes even in a cinematic form can be the thing that really does it. I think, yeah. You know, um, it's the difference between the physical violence and the emotional violence, right? Right. Um, and we, we have often substituted um, physical violence for emotional violence. We don't do a lot of emotional violence anymore. As a matter of fact, um, during the Inquisition, one of the, I can't remember exactly what it was called. I always call it present, presentation of the instruments. It was something like that. And part of your torture was they would show you all the implements they were going to use to torture you with. <laughs> right? That was part of the process. Well, we're going to use this thing and this crazy thing that looks like a saw and this thing that does this and this thing. You know, like, because that is a kind of violence. You might go, sure, I'll convert, convert right now. Like, you know, just yeah. seeing the stuff. Right. So um, they understood that was violence and used it that way. It was part of the torture. Right. Yeah. I was mo I'm mostly concerned with the craft stuff of it. So is there any craft thing that I haven't asked about that you think about or that you apply or that you see people misusing or not using? Or, um, I mean, we talked about dialogue a little bit. I think it gets talked about too much. I think the way we talked about it is the way I like to talk. What's it for? What's it doing? Not, is it cool? Is it funny? Is it, you know what I mean? You well, know, take my shoe leather example. Uh, do you have a pin? It's in the uh, second drawer on the left. Oh, okay. And how long will it take to go to the movie theater? Well, now what if the person asking all that is stalling because somebody's about to show up and they want a three-way confrontation. So That's they don't want to leave to go to the movie yet. Really, is it, you said you turn right after three blocks? Okay. Suddenly it has yeah. a purpose, you know? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great way to, to think about it. That's exactly right. Like all of a sudden there's something going on. And yeah. it's, not, it's not about where the pen is. It's, it doesn't matter what people are saying, right? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I find that that's true. What people don't understand about scenes often is that everything important is happening underneath. Everything important is happening in what people aren't saying. Right. Right. Doesn't matter what they're saying. Right. Well, you right. know, the soap, soap operas had, they had no subtext. They, right. You said it. Yeah. You know, I've always hated you. <laughs> I hated you since last summer. Right. We to Capri and you, you know. <laughs> right. What people don't realize is that it's always more fascinating and more interesting and more engaging if the person saying, I always hated you, is really saying, I always loved you. Right. Right. I always hated the way you snored. Right. I always hated the way you came home later than you thought you were in. You know, like, oh, oh, that's, that's different. Right, right, right. Yeah. If oh, what they're saying is I love you, that's different. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Soap operas have no subtext. And to be honest, I see a lot of that in not soap operas. I see a lot of, I go, why is everybody saying exactly what they mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like I watch stuff. I'm like, why? There's no reason to watch this. They're all saying exactly what they mean. Right. Right. You know?
Um, when that happens, yeah. Yeah, it happens a lot. Um, I also notice I can tell when somebody's learned, they're sort of regurgitating dialogue they've heard. Like, so people on TV often talk like people on TV. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is the kind of thing they would say on TV. And I made fun of it when I was a teenager. I'm like, somebody always says something like, you think you can just waltz back into my life? It's like, I've never heard anybody say that, but they say it on TV all the time. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know um, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of, it's like they've heard it somewhere or something like it on TV instead of looking at life and using that as their inspiration for the way people are speaking. They're looking at TV and using that or they're right. looking at movies and using that. Well, uh, like in the 30s and 40s movies when they, somebody would say, Come out of there, I tell you. Right, <laughs> right. yeah. Which is, you know, you know they, the, the writer had seen that in another movie. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think about what happens on set when you have interesting dialogue and the director finally goes, well, just say I never liked you. <laughs> you know, that, that happens on set. Right. You know? Yeah. When they're yeah. not they're not making the good subtext stuff work, they'll they'll just go for whatever well just say what she's thinking. You know. <laughs> yeah, like well why would you do that? You know, yeah. It's almost like you always need something for the audience to be doing. Right? And if they're understanding the subtext, they're doing something. Yeah, they're saying this, but they're really talking about this. He's talking about the pen, but he's really stalling, right? That, right. It, it's, all, it's like in order for them to be engaged emotionally, they have to be engaged on some level mentally. Right. Right? Oh, I know what she's doing. I know what he's doing. I know what he's saying. You know, uh, it, 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 it seems to work. Uh, better when people have something to do. You don't want them to have too much to do, but you want them to have something to do. Something to do, yeah. You know, uh, if they're doing too much, they're out of it because they're trying to figure too much out. Right. So wait, he's the guy, but I thought he killed the, no, he was the guy who, now you're not in it. Right. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, so it has to be clear enough. It's just what we said at the beginning of this. It has to be clear enough with enough space, you know, for people to, to fill in that space, almost like in the outline process, right? Like, exactly. Yeah, this has to be clear. These things have to happen, but there's room for discovery in there. And I think the audience needs that room too, to make these connections, uh, to yeah. get invested. Mm -hmm. Otherwise there's nothing for them to do. Um, yeah. You know, and that's why soap operas are soap operas. I think that's why they're thought of as a cheap form of entertainment. They don't have to be that, right? No. But I, you know, there's nothing that says that they have to be that. Um, I mean, I think they're partially, it's because they're written so quickly. There's got to be one on every day. Um, you know, yeah. I, I can't imagine what that's like. I did meet a soap opera writer. I don't know if you've ever talked to a soap opera writer, but it's a pretty fascinating process. Cause well, I think I, I was one. Were you when? How did I not know this? This was uh, right before the ranch, I think. Okay. I, uh, uh, it was only for half a year, and I got out of UCLA, and I had to unlearn what I'd learned and write badly. Really? And know that I was writing badly. Yeah. That's I, amazing. 
I had no idea. I don't remember that. I, maybe I knew it once upon a time, but I've completely forgotten that. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, what did you have to unlearn? Well, they said the exposition. They said everything that was on their mind. They said, you know, it was just, I, I would turn it in and think they're going to scream at me. And they'd say, good, good. That, that works. <laughs> it was wow. When you started and sold that first screenplay, and the person I'm talking to now, what's the difference between those two writers? If you want to call it the right brain and the left brain, but whatever, the logical and administrative left brain, the totally free, exploratory right brain, um, always have an uneasy balance because the left brain is criticizing always what you're writing. That I got to a point where they just went together and would go forward like this. Hmm. And without too much criticism hurting the, you know, and without too much running all over the place by the right brain, and it was almost like bringing two threads together into the middle of a sewing machine and going like that. And that's really what, what changed about me, actually. Is it a smoother process for you now, or is it just, just as hard, just a different process? <laughs> oh, it's still hard. <laughs> but there is a lot of intuitive, yeah. It is better to have the left and right brain cooperating. Mm-hmm. Because that left brain can just, when I was starting out, it was just, that's bad. That's bad. That's bad. That's bad. Right. You, know, you got to get that under control. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always say to people, you can be a writer or you can be an editor, but you can't do them both at the same time. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that they work together, that your, your writer and editor work in concert. Yeah. It took a long time. For that mm -hmm. I bet it did. I bet it did. Um, yeah, I just think that's good for people to know, that to know that that's a normal thing. I think that people think they're doing it wrong when it's hard. I think the more people they see who they admire, whose work they admire, and they just go, it's hard. I think that's important because when they're sitting there and it's hard, they can listen to all these shows and read all the screenwriting books in the world and all of that stuff. Um, and they sit down and it's hard and they think, well, maybe I didn't get it or maybe I didn't understand it. or maybe It's like, oh, no, it's just hard. What? No, yeah, what? right. It's just hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard for all of us. It's not hard if you're bad at it. <laughs> well, that's true. It is true. That's true. It's, it's really easy to do if you're bad at it um, <laughs> because you don't have any parameters. You have nothing you're trying to reach for. You have nothing, you know – you're not trying to make sure that there's subtext. You're not trying to make sure, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not trying to make sure the exposition gets out clearly. You're not trying, you're not trying. So it's easy. But uh, I always think, say it's a target. The more you know, the smaller the target gets that you're trying to hit. And it gets That's harder the more you know, not easier the more you know. That's good point. Good yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I think that's important for people to know because it, it, when they sit there and they're all by themselves and there's no Jim Wools telling them what to do or no Brian McDonald telling them what to do, they think, oh, well, how do I do this? It's like, you know what? 
I'm in the room by myself too when I'm in, you know, and I don't have all, all I have. I do like to say, I bring Rod Serling into the room with me. I bring <laughs> Patichewski into the room with me. I bring, you know, I have what they have done. I have what I have learned from them. I can sort of consult them as I work, but it is really just me in a room. And that's the way it is. Um, and you just get used to that idea and get used to the idea that it's hard. Um, so I think that's a really good way to, to close. Well, thank you for having me on. I yeah, I, I really appreciate having you on the show. And we this is probably the longest we've talked and I don't know how long. So uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so I appreciate that too, just getting to, to hang out with you for a while. Yeah, yeah, uh, me too. Yeah, so we should, we should do this uh, again with no show. We don't need a show to talk. We don't need a show, we can just hang out. <laughs> we can just hang out. And people are like, oh, I wonder what they talk about when nobody's, you know, it'll be nothing. But, but you know, it'll be a nice mystery for people. So anyway, Jim, thank you so much, man. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.